Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is the Ampeg guy, Dino Minoxilis. First of all, the FTC is finally getting tough on social media fakers. Yes, it's now illegal to sell fake indicators of social media influence, as they would call it, and that means selling likes and followers. This all came from one particular case. There's a Florida company called Devumi, and Devumi has about 3.5 million automated accounts, mostly on Twitter, and they've sold more than 200 million followers to mostly celebrities, believe it or not. So what they would do is they would sell followers, they would do retweets, all for these celebs. Now, they were required to pay a $2.5 million fine as a result. And for the most part, they're out of business. Now, Facebook is also taking legal action against fake sellers as well. So in other words, if you're selling fake likes or comments or anything like that, well, guess what? They're coming after you. But there's a lot of Chinese companies that are doing this, and that means they're kind of outside what's possible, at least legally. Facebook will be able to shut down their accounts should they find them, but they really can't come after them legally unless they're somewhere other than China. Not finished there yet, the FTC also ruled that you cannot post fake reviews. You can't have a bunch of people that work for you anonymously post or post from fake accounts fake reviews saying how great you are or your product is. So keep that in mind because not only will that get you kicked off of Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, but it can get the government coming after you because it's now illegal. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosenskycourses.com. Also, check out my free ebook and PDF downloads on mixing, production, mastering, and social media at bobbyosinski.com forward slash free hyphen resources. Now let's talk about free plugins. It's pretty interesting. There are so many free plugins available on the market. And we see websites and forums, and all sorts of companies online offering them for free. Now, I have a theory on this. One is that they're about as good as what you paid for. For the most part, any company that gives you something like that for free means they didn't spend much time on it to begin with, or else they wouldn't give it to you for free. And they also think that, well, here's what we think it's worth, but we can never get that. So let's just give it away for free, And that way we get new users into our environment, we get them on our mailing list, and maybe we can upsell them to something else. But here's the thing. It's just like the hardware days. There was all sorts of the real thing hardware. I'm talking about effects devices, for instance, or microphone preamps or compressors, EQs, any of those things. And the pros used them because they sounded great, but they're expensive. So when inexpensive counterparts came out that were maybe half the price, third of the price, quarter of the price, were really cheap. Of course, a lot of people used them because they couldn't afford to get the high-end gear that the pros were using, 
But the problem is they just never sounded like you wanted them to. Now, if you have a signal chain that's made up of all of these devices, you probably don't know the difference. But if you're in a good recording environment, you'll be able to tell right away, especially if you compare it to something in the high end. It's the same thing with plugins as well. There are some plugins that you have to pay for. You have to pay, I don't want to say dearly, but you have to open up your pocketbook. They choose to charge because there's a fair amount of development time. They have to make their money back. And really, they sound better than some of the free plugins. So here you go. You get what you pay for. The free stuff is free. Does it sound as good as the more expensive counterparts? Usually not. Like everything else, there's always one that you find that's really cool that you use like that. Mostly not, though. Here's the other thing that people kind of forget about. They get plugin overload. So when you open up your digital audio workstation, you get this bloated startup that happens. And you get tons of these things, but you're not using them. Or maybe you used them once <laughs> or twice. Oh, I just want to see what this sounds like. But you don't go back for it. Anything you pay for, you're going to try a lot more. Let's face it. I think another problem here is the fact that some of these things are unstable and they don't work on every workstation. So that's a bad combination. You get something that's free. Yeah, that's great. But maybe it likes a lot of processor power. Maybe it's glitchy on your workstation. So you add that up and you go, hmm, might be better to pay for something. Anyway, I don't want to come down too hard on free plugins because there are some that are really great. There are some by big reputable companies that are definitely well worth it. Most of these are specialty plugins that you won't use very often, but they're cool when you need them. But I just caution you on the free plugins, knowing that if you're going to get it for free, that's probably what it's worth. My guest today is Dino Minoxilis, who is currently a senior product specialist and product planning manager for Ampeg Amplifiers. He's affectionately known as the Ampeg guy for his extensive knowledge about the company and its products, which he's used as a working bass player for over 30 years. Dino spends a lot of time training salesmen, conducting clinics, and demoing Ampeg products all over the world. He's also the author of four books on playing bass and recently authored a column in Bass Player magazine. During the interview, we spoke about the past Ampeg guitar amps, the speaker setup of the SVT cabinet, the most preferred vintages of bass amps, and much more. I spoke with Dino via phone from his office near Boston. How did you get started really in the business? And I know you have a varied background. There's lots that you did, but give me a little bit of your backstory. Oh, man. Well, I, you know, I started as most kids do in the, you know, I started in the, in the school music program playing in, you know, the school jazz band and whatnot, and, uh, graduated to playing in a, in a local rock band in the Boston area. And we had some amount of, you know, some recognition. Um, you know, I wanted, I, I wanted to do it as a living. So I thought the only way to do that would be to go to either New York or LA. And, um, I ended up settling on LA. This was early nineties. And, um, I lived out in LA for about nine years. I went to school at musicians Institute. Um, I ended up teaching there for probably about seven years after I graduated. And, you know, I did the LA thing, just auditioning for everybody from Ozzy Osbourne to Tiffany to, 
you name it. It was an audition and it was paying. I was standing in line waiting to audition. <laughs> um, you know, and then uh, eventually life catches up with you. I got married and, and had had my first daughter and realized my wife and I thought, you know, we, we need to go back home to Boston and uh, raise raise our family the, the proper way, you know, with, with more family around so that so we could pass our kids off when we wanted to go out at night. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I mean, I've always, I've always made all or a portion of my living through, through playing live and studio work and teaching and, you know, every, every facet of, of being a musician that's possible. And, um, you know, one of those parts landed me in a music store. When I moved back to Boston, I ended up working in a local music store and, uh, that's where I met, um, our, our Ampeg rep was, um, became a good buddy of mine. And he eventually introduced me to the folks at Ampeg and, you know, fast forward 16 years later, I'm still, I'm still working for Ampeg and, and traveling around the world and doing clinics and talking Ampeg. And it's just, it's, it, I have to pinch myself every now and then because it's, uh, it's been a hell of a ride. I'll say that. You know? Yeah, well, Ampeg is such an iconic brand as well, and for a bass player like yourself to be with that company, it, it doesn't get much better than that, really. If you're going to have that kind of a gig, it's the best you can ask for. Yeah, yeah, it's, you know, and I remember when I first got the gig, you know, it started, I I was, they introduced me to the folk, to who, people who were still my good friends that worked at Ampeg at the time. I, I would go out to NAMM shows and, um, and, uh, and, and do, um, demonstrations for them. And then they eventually just hired me full time. Cause they figured it was cheaper than, than, than pay me to go out to NAM every year. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it was just, um, you know, I, I didn't know how long the gig was going to last. I, I even said to my wife at the time, I said, this could go five months. This can go six months. This could go, who knows, maybe it'll become a career, but you know, um, the, the future of me, like hooking up with a major touring act, you know, like Phil Collins or Eric Clapton or, or, or any of those guys calling me to take me on the road that those chances were getting slimmer and slimmer. So this ended up being, you know, I treat it the same way, man. I just, I've had a, I've had my own solo gig with Ampeg for, for 16 years now. It's been awesome. Yeah. But the fact of the matter is, as you get older, you don't want those kind of gigs. It's nice to be at home when, when you can be at home. I know you travel a lot, but even so, it's more controlled than when you're on the road and going out for a really long time. I'm sure you feel the same way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's my one aspect that I do with Ampeg is I work with artist relations. So, you know, I'm working with Eva Gardner from Pink and Daryl Jones and, you know, all these high-level players and artists. And, I mean, these cats, they go out for a you know, sometimes they're out for a couple of years at a time Yeah, and, um, you know, and, and they do very well for themselves, but yeah, I mean, I, I, uh, I'm, I'm probably one of the few guys that genuinely likes being home with his family and, you know, they're there for all the kids events and the, the family events. And so Ampeg, it's just been a blessing. It's, it's afforded me to be able to do that and still have somewhat of a normal family life too. Well, let's talk Ampeg. And I go way, way back with Ampeg, and I'll tell you how far I 
I played in a band with the guy that had a violin bass who absolutely loved it. We all loved it. And I don't remember exactly what the problem is, but I think it had something to do with glue. And the neck came off of it and he couldn't get it put back on or something like that. Do you know what the story is on that, on those, those bases? Um, now the, are you referring to the baby bass, the upright bass? No, 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 no. The, the violin bass. Yeah. It had, um, two F holes in it. Oh, um, okay. Yeah. That, that kind of went through the body. Yeah. Right. Yep. Yep. I forget that that was a, oh, what was the model? I want to say like an EUB one or something like that, but, um, I don't recall what the problem was with it. I know they had this weird, like funky transducer pickup system in them that uh, a lot of guys would like tear out and just put a traditional like P bass pickup. Um, but I don't recall there being any neck problems with them. Yeah. You know, I'm going to have to ask him what the problem is. I think he still has it, but it's unplayable, unfortunately. Okay. So I was just curious about that. Now, here's something else that I find interesting. Ampeg is known as a bass amp company as well as it should be. That being said, there was a point in time where guitar amps were actually a big part of the Ampeg line as well, right? Yeah. In fact, you know, I, I still see like Reverber Rockets and Geminis all over, you know, Craigslist and eBay and, and Reverb and all those guys. But yeah, up until... Uh, I want to say up until like 2012, we were building guitar amps. Um, there were GVT series, um, and they were short lived. They only lasted a couple of years, but yeah, off and on Ampeg. It's funny. If you talk to, if you talk to, especially any Rolling Stones fan, <laughs> they, right. you know, it's it's either you're a Rolling Stones fan or you were a guitar player brought up east of the Mississippi that you know about Ampeg guitar amps. But yeah, I mean that's Ampeg was like one of the first companies to do a reverb tank and a guitar amplifier. Um, there are a lot of firsts uh, in terms of guitar amps for Ampeg. Yeah, yeah. I remember walking through the oh, I guess it's the RCA Studio Museum in Nashville. I think it's Studio A. Have you ever been there? I have not, no. Well, it's great. It's worth going through, but one of the things they have is an exhibit of all of the instruments that they used to use. And one thing on the exhibit that really stuck out was there was a reverb rocket there. Sure. And apparently that was used on all of the things that Owen Bradley and all those guys, Chet Atkins and all those productions, that's what they used back then. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and that's, I mean, that... It, it, you kind of hit the nail right on the head there. Like anything country rockabilly, um, you know, somebody that's looking for that, that clean, like I call it chicken picking sound, but, um, you know, that, that the reverber rocker was famous for that type of sound. It really was. Okay. Let's talk about bass amps. And of course there's so many iconic ones, especially B15 SVT. I want to talk about the SVT for a second because it had and still has the most unusual speaker setup with the eight tens. How did that come about? Cause that was way different from what anybody else was doing. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's funny. We just had, um, we had Bill Hughes who was one of the originators, the original inventors of the SVT. 
um, out in Calabasas because we're working on this 50th anniversary SVT. So we brought him out, did some video interviews with him. And, and I asked him that same question because at that point it was just like 15s and 18s were the standard. And, and his philosophy or his design ideas were that when you build a head, you should also build, in other words, when you build a bass amplifier, you should build an entire system that's designed together versus, you know, a lot of companies will build ahead and they'll have like a series of cabinets that they kind of pair up. Um, and he, and I remember him saying, he says, no, the, the SVT head and two A10 bottoms were designed as an entire system. And the reason behind the tens was, you know, obviously for base response, you have to move a ton of air. That's basically, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a physics major, but if you want base, you have to move air. The only way to move air is with speaker surface. Now you can do that with either a couple of 15s or a couple of 18s, or you can compensate by using multiple tens, which essentially gives you all, if the, the same, if not more speaker surface than a couple of 15s. The advantage to the tens though, is because they're, so, they're a smaller speaker design their transient response is a lot faster than say a 15 or an 18. So you, you're kind of, you're, you're getting that, that brightness from a 10, but you're also moving a tremendous amount of air because they're all clustered together. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, it does. One of the things that would always strike me about an SVT was that all bass players played loud with one, you know, it's because the enormous power, first of all, but I think the second thing is it's difficult to hear when you're close to it, you're on stage, the sound develops way later. I, I don't know exactly the footage away from the speaker, but it's way beyond the stage where, so it seems like in order to compensate, you crank it up a little bit. Do, do you ever notice that? Well, that's, and it's funny because that is, I, I hate to say it, but that is one of the advantages of using an A10 cab versus like a ported 15 or a couple of 15s that, you can stand pretty much a couple of feet away from an A10 cab and the wave develops a lot sooner. Mm, yeah. So, so what you're hearing standing in front of the amp is it's not going to throw as far. In other words, it won't throw as far into the venue, but you're, what you're hearing standing five feet on stage is the same thing that somebody might be hearing 15 feet or 20 feet into the audience. So that was the other advantage of using, uh, using tens versus like a ported, enclosure where you know you're turning up on stage because you're not hearing anything but you know you're you're killing the last row in the back of the venue because they're finally hearing the wave by the time it gets to them yeah you know it's funny because i know there were a lot of different versions of the svt of which i'm not an aficionado so i can't tell you all of them but i do know that there are some vintages that are preferred over others like what vintage is the one that everybody wants Good question. So, and again, you know, with this, with this 50th that we're doing, we had a bunch of artists come into Calabasas and we had, we had an original 69 blue line, what they call the Linden, New Jersey blue line. We had one of those, we had a mid seventies, like Magnavox era. Um, we had a couple of St. Louis music and loud era SVTs. And we had all these SVT players, come in to, uh, to sit down and evaluate. And they all like the first thing that they all gravitated towards was the, the original blue line, the original 69. 
And, um, and then the second one that they kind of gravitated towards was the mid seventies Magnavox, which kind of had a little more cleaner headroom than the, the 69 kind of broke up and kind of got that nasty, you know, that, that broken up overdriven SVT sound, whereas the mid seventies Magnavox had a cleaner sound to it. So, but those are the two, those seem to be the two most revered eras of SVT was the 69 and the mid seventies. Was there a reason that they would give? Well, I, I think, you know, I, I think, um, you know, one of them is perception. You know, when you know you're playing to an original year issue of an SVT, like, man, this is a 69. This is like one of the first ones. Um, it's kind of like that, you know, that perception of, oh, yeah, man, I got, I got a pre-CBS Fender P bass, you know, which is a great bass. Don't get me wrong, but I think there's a little bit of perception there. And I, I you know, I hate to say it, we, you know, unfortunately, they don't, nobody builds amplifiers like they did back in the sixties and the seventies It's just, you know, raw materials aren't, aren't as, as easy to come by as they were back then. So yeah. I, I and I mean, let's face it, the 69 just sounds killer. It really does. Mm, yeah. It really does. Yeah. Okay. So now because of the, the association with line six and, and Yamaha, I would imagine that modeling is high in the list on this. <laughs> It's not actually, it's funny. A lot of people think that. And one of the first initiatives when Yamaha and line six bought Ampeg, and I remember sitting in, in, in like meetings about this. And one of the first initiatives was don't screw this up. <laughs> Ampeg is known as, you know, let's for lack of a better term, a vintage company, a company that has, you know, a 70 year legacy we built our reputation off of tube amps and, and that type of technology. So for, for line six to step in, I mean, they kind of felt line six to step in and start imposing this digital technology would just kind of be a disservice to the brand and, and be a disservice to the customer base that, that have always been fans of the brand. So that's why the first thing that we developed was this 50th anniversary SVT. Now that's not to say that, you know, we're not, we are definitely working on digital alternatives for bass players because we want to give bass players, you know, we want to give them a solution to their playing needs. And in some cases, you know, doing a digital modeling, it may be what they're exactly what they're looking for, but we want to stay true to the, to the legacy of what Ampeg is. And that's building two amps. One of the things I just saw today, actually, which I thought was brilliant and a statement as well. Fender just came out with digital versions of their Deluxe and Twin, and they look exactly the same. They act the same. They sound as close as, as they could get. And I found it interesting because there's no whistles and bells. It's just trying to reproduce the sound without tubes, right? So they have Class D amplifiers in them, and, and now it's, it's half the price and, and half the weight as before. Right. And they seem to do a good job. Now, that being said, that seems to be the way things are going because now younger players don't care as much about tube sounds, yeah. about the old classic style of doing things or hearing things for that matter. So yeah. how does that play in everything? Well, I mean, you know, let's face it. If you, you know, I've had conversations, like I said, with Bill Hughes, uh, a couple other like really well-known 
tube manufacturers, and they all agree that tubes, you know, unfortunately, tubes are eventually going to become obsolete. The, the world is eventually going to run out of tubes, maybe not in my lifetime, but, you know, so we have to start looking at other technologies. That's the, that's the reality of just not having the materials to build, you know, these vintage amps. The other aspect of it is, yeah, I mean, a lot of the younger kids, they, and, and I've kind of adopted it too. And that's one thing I've, I've had this conversation with the guys at line six, like, I don't care if you build it out of, you know, chicken, chicken poop and, and feathers as, as long as it sounds the way it's supposed to sound, I don't care what you put in it, just make it sound like an Ampeg. And then there's, you know, obviously there's the manufacturing cost that, you know, when you get into building a digital amp, you know, it's, it is, it's more cost effective and, and you can build it lighter and you can offer it at a, at a lower price point. So there's advantages to it, you know, but yeah, there's the, there's also the diehard guys that are like, no oh, man, I got to have my two best VT. And you know, is, is, I don't know if you're ever going to satisfy those guys to be honest. Right. Right. And they have strong backs or two good roadies. <laughs> one or the other you know it's i just had back surgery back in february after 16 years of lugging svts around for ampeg i probably wouldn't have for back surgery <laughs> um and it, there was nothing you know it wasn't uh, it was it was had nothing to do with uh with lifting stuff it was more arthritis and and stenosis but everybody makes fun of me they're like yeah lifting SVTs your whole life. No wonder why you're going in for back surgery, you know? <laughs> yeah, there you go. I want to come back again to the classic amplifiers like the B15. Now, again, I know there are different vintages of that. Well, which one is the most revered? Is it the same thing? Is it the 69 era? No, that's, and again, we did uh, 2000, was it 2010? We did a, um, we did a heritage version of, we reissued the B15 and we kind of did the same thing. We had a bunch of artists and pulled a bunch of B15 users. And it came down to the 1964 B15, which was a cathode bias, like 25 watt B15. That was like one of the most revered errors. And then the other one was the 64 B15, which was a fixed bias 30 watt. And the, the, for anybody that's listening, the difference in sound was if you think of the 64, it's like the old Jamerson sound, the puffy, you know, real pillowy type P bass flat wound type sound. Think, think of like the opening baseline to my girl. And then the 64 era was more geared towards like, if you listen to like some, uh, some of Carol K Carol K's uh, recordings on the beach boys that, you know, more of a defined clicky hot more of a hi-fi sounding type um type bass sound those kind of the only two ways i can differentiate the two or explain them but you know the way we perceive bass or like to hear bass is different than, than the way it used to be because and i can remember when i first walked into my first recording studio and watching the engineer on the bass channel go and turn the top end down the treble all the way down <laughs> yeah and that was the perception that that was like well you don't need the high end on it because all we're looking for is bass yeah and now it's different because we want a hi-fi sound and we're trying to get all the frequencies of the bass which sometimes doesn't make it easy to mix but that being said it's a different way that we listen to it these days yeah 
and, and you know, even now, like when I'm doing gigs on the weekends, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll come in for sound check and, you know, the front of house will spend half an hour, 40 minutes on the drums, <laughs> then another half hour, 40 minutes on, on vocals and guitar. And then when it comes time for me to check, it's like, Oh, okay. We're all set. <laughs> like, well, I, I, I played three notes guys, you know, it's like, ah, it's just bass, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's interesting. I, you know, you got to give credit to guys like Stanley Clark and, and Chris Squire and all these pioneers that John Entwistle, especially, Yeah, you know, that, that guy, Tim Bogert, another one, good buddy of mine, you know, they all, they all kind of stepped out of that backlight you know, and, and, and define kind of what we listen to as bass today, you know, that hi-fi sound. Right, right, right. Ampeg makes a pedal, S-E-R-D-I, which I find very interesting. Yep. Is it a modeler? Nope. No, that's what I thought. I thought it, all it was was just analog circuitry that just gave you a wide range of tone options. That's, that's really, it really is. It's a completely analog pedal. I, I, refer, I call it the Swiss Army Knife. Because it's, you know, it's a DI first and foremost. You, every bass player should always have a DI with them. Um, but then it's got a built-in preamp, which is based off of the analog preamp on our Portaflex and BA combos. And then on top of all that, it's got a little headphone section. So you can plug in your headphones and an iPod and use it as a practice amp too. Hmm. But yeah, it's all, it's, it's completely analog. A lot of people think there's, a, think there's a tube in it too. And it's not, it's all, it's all solid state an- analog. Yeah, it's a great little pedal. Okay. What are the challenges now that Ampeg is facing? And I know a lot of it has to do with the fact that the tastes of modern players is somewhat different. But what would be the challenges? Well, one one of the big challenges that we're seeing now is, well, first and foremost, bass players want small, lightweight. I think... Like working guys that are that are in the clubs and and in the smaller venues and even touring to some degree, that are carrying their own gear, they want small and lightweight. Nobody carries around a 19 inch rack head anymore. Yeah. I mean, there's still guys that do it, but the general consensus is the guys that are out working, you know, in the trenches, they they want something they can stick in their back pocket and uh, and go do a gig. This, the the flip side of that is. You look at, you know, we're looking at all these, all the major production, all the major uh, tours and the production that goes into this, into these tours. A lot of these tours are now asking for clean stages. You know, these big artists, they'll, they'll bring, they'll, they bring set designers onto the stage to design their sets for them. And the first thing that everybody says is get those ugly amplifiers (laughs) off the stage. So, you know, in previous years, all the amplifiers would go underneath the stage. And then, you know, I, and this is just my perception. It's like, all right, well, if they're going underneath the stage and nobody's really listening to them or hearing them anyways, we're just kind of feeding them into front of house. So, you know, why do we need these amplifiers out there processors or, you know, everybody's going to Kemper or, or, um, fractal and, now, of course, line six helix that that come pretty darn close, uh, especially, you know, if you're if you're playing, you know, if you're playing a 30,000 seat arena, nobody's going to most people can't tell the difference whether the bass player is playing an SVP mic 
or whether they've got a fractal or a helix underneath the stage, you know? So that's kind of the, 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 the dilemma that we've been talking about at Antipeg lately is like, okay, what trying to predict the future really like, okay, eventually there's going to come a point where our bass player is just not going to need amplifiers on stage. Is everything going to go to some sort of processing or powered speakers with a, with a, you know, with a processor up front, that's, that's the biggest challenge is, is trying to predict the future, but also trying to, trying to innovate, you know, just like the SVT was an innovation back in the late sixties, you know, nobody really thought of that sort of base system. We're kind of doing the same thing now in 2019, where we're trying to like, okay, what can we do Again, what can we do to provide the working bass player, whether they're a touring guy or, or a club guy, what can we do to provide a solution that's going to make it easy for them to do their job and still offer performance? Kind of what it comes down to. So that's, you know, that is one of the biggest challenges for us. Well, let's go one more place then. The V4 is so iconic. And as a bass amp, it was great. It was kind of like that step down in power from the SVT, but then you had the Stones touring with them there for a while as guitar amps. That always blew my mind. Yeah, well, they made, they made um, so there was the V4, which was a guitar amp, and then there was the V4B, which was a bass amp. And the only difference between the two was the V4 had a reverb tank and the V4B did not. Ah. Other than that, the amps were identical. Got it. And we, um, we still, we actually reissued the V4 oh, quite a few years ago. It's sure there were the V4B. So it's basically, it's a, it's a hundred watt all tube amp without a reverb tank. And, um, it's by far, it's like one of my favorite, I still, I gig with that amp more than I gig with any other amp, big amp. It's one of my favorite sounding amplifiers. Um, because it's, it's half the weight of an SVT, and it still has a lot of that SVT sound. I used to play with the bass player who decided he needed a new amp, and he first bought an acoustic. And it just did not work. It crapped out. It just sounded terrible. And he went and he bought a, a V4B. And when he bought the V4B, the cabinet that he got with it was one of those old, big reflex cabinets. <laughs> yep. And I can remember it was such a hassle packing that and moving it around and everything. And it was, again, one of those where right up on stage, you couldn't hear it. But, you know, back in the back of the room, it was just like charging. It was unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. And that was, that's, that, those were one of those cabinets that, because it was a folded horn, the, you know, the wave didn't develop until it was like all the way out to the venue. Yeah. It was basically like this giant subwoofer. Yeah. Right. I remember those cabinets. And those, those, the V4B bottoms were essentially the same, the same dimensions of an A10 cab, only twice as deep. Yes. Right. So it was, it was basically like stacking two A10 cabs front to back and then having to move them. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, it was crazy. I remember. All right. Last question then. What's the best piece of business advice someone imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way learn to think <laughs> that would, <laughs> that, develop your singing voice because singing bass players are are far and few between but um 
but from a business standpoint, it's just, you know, it, we, we say, like I tell my wife, you know, I'm going out to play music. And, and I remember saying that to my parents too. My parents would be like, Oh, my son plays music. It's like, don't miss, don't misconstrue the word play because we do, we go out and play and we have fun. And, and I can't think of anything else I'd rather be doing, but it's a business too. And treat it, you know, treat it somewhat as a business, especially if you want to make your living at it. And, um, you know, no matter how much, no matter how much you love gigging, don't ever give away your talent, you know? And, and I've seen, I've seen a lot of, a lot of great players, a lot of, a lot of really devoted players that will go out and, you know, the old joke, who, who puts, you know, 5,000 worth of $5,000 worth of gear into a $500 car to drive 50 miles to make $25. You know, <laughs> only a musician would, only a musician would do something like that. But yeah, just, just, you know, treat it as a business, you know, do, do your taxes, pay your taxes, earn your money, have fun doing it and, you know, and, and make a living at it. That's really it. You can find out more about Dino at his personal website, monotunesmusic.com. It's all one word, mono, M-O-N-O, tunes, T-U-N-E-S, music.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyowinnercircle.com. To listen to the episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyowinnercircle.com, where you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.